Well, before we begin to delve into the scripture, let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, as Todd mentioned, my name is Justin Reed Smith. I am the husband of one wife. My wife Liz is here as well with me. I am the father of four children. I am a church planter. Liz and I went to Missoula, Montana, not too far from here, um, to start an Anglican congregation. Our closest Anglican congregation at the time was an hour and a half East of us, two hours really, in Butte, Montana, traveling 80 miles an hour on I-90. The next closest was over in Spokane, Washington, which is about a three-hour drive going west on I-90 at 80 miles an hour. Um, I am the dean of the Rocky Mountain Deanery. Um, If you can tell me what that means, I'd be grateful. Um, I'm trying to figure out what that means many, many days, but it's a joy to be with you. I'll share a little bit about uh, the Rocky Mountain Deanery. When the Rocky Mountain Deanery came into the Diocese of Western Anglicans, there were three congregations. There was one in Spokane, one in Boise, Idaho, and one in Butte, Montana. There are now eight congregations and three new works that are happening, and so we have continued to propagate and proclaim the kingdom and the gospel. Um, Not because of our own work, but because God is faithful when we are not, and God empowers us when we are faithful. Our goal is, as Bishop Keith has articulated, for all deaneries to become their own diocese. So that's the goal, and it's a great goal. It's a kingdom-sized goal. And the hope, I think, for all of us here in this place and in your home churches, if you're not from here, is that Jesus will be glorified and magnified as we plant churches and proclaim his kingdom. Amen? Amen. So part of my work as dean is to uh, encourage local congregations, but also to challenge local congregations. So if you were hoping to be comfortable this morning, I'm sorry, you may want to find a different church. I haven't been comfortable this week as I've reflected on the scriptures. So welcome to the party. In my house, there was a hero present. My father, growing up, had become very enamored with a man by the name of John Wayne. And John Wayne was a hero to my dad. And heroes are really, in the ancient sense of that word, are very clear cut. You know, especially in more recent history with cowboy movies. The good guy wears the white hat and the bad guy wears the black hat. And there's a very clear delineation of what a hero is supposed to do, what a hero's, how a hero is supposed to speak, what they're supposed to act upon. And the thing we have to remember is that many times the hero understanding for us is something that Jesus wants to challenge. You see, 
the parable that we heard this morning of the Pharisee and tax collector and the two parables that follow are actually hero parables. But the hero in the parable is not necessarily who we would think it is. In true Jesus fashion, he says, here's what you think. Now let me flip it on its head for the sake of the kingdom. So if you have a Bible or you have your bulletin in front of you, turn with me to Luke chapter 18 this morning. Luke chapter 18. Now, as I said already, verse 9 is the beginning of three parables at Jesus or three situations in which Jesus articulates a hero. The first is the Pharisee and the tax collector. The second is when people were denying children coming to Jesus. And the third is the rich young ruler. You see, all three of these parables and all three of these situations help us understand the pragmatics, the importance, the central values, if you will, of the kingdom of God. All three of these situations, hopefully, if we hear them well, will challenge us to not necessarily leave this place thinking in the same way as we thought when we came. You see, in Jewish culture, the child was small, and it was under the covenantal authority and protection of their parents and the people of Israel, but didn't really have an authority unto themselves. And yet Jesus draws them to the center, to his presence, in his hands, in his lap, to say, let them come to me. Challenge number one. Then a man who, according to Jewish history and Jewish understanding of God, who was truly blessed because God had blessed him with wealth, with power, comes to Jesus and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. I've kept them. Then what you need to do is take your money, sell it, and give it all away to the poor and follow me. Now, before uh, we as true American capitalists get a little too uncomfortable, Jesus encounters the rich young ruler here in this place at this time in this way because it's the rich young ruler. We read other encounters with Jesus. For instance, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner. Zacchaeus, very different outworking as he encounters Jesus. So don't hear that we need to live in a commune, sell everything. Don't hear that. But Jesus is actually challenging the hero of the Jewish culture and the rich young ruler. Because to them, he was the hero. God has obviously blessed him. Because look at the money he has. Look at the house he lives in. Look at the car he drives. Maybe not the car, but at least the house, right? And here we sit in this parable this morning of the Pharisee and the tax collector. One of the core things we have to ask ourselves as we enter into any parable of Jesus is who do I identify with? Who do I identify with in the parable itself. And Jesus, being Jesus, wants to catch us out. He wants to highlight 
that bias, that orientation, in order that the kingdom of God might reside in our hearts more, that his presence might be in us more, that the way that we see the world is the way that he sees the world, the way that we encounter people is the way that he encounters people. And so we have to ask the question at the very beginning, who do you identify with? And Luke is given us a hint about Jesus' orientation, his desire for this parable in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke lays out for us why Jesus is telling this parable. Now, as we get into the parable, Jesus starts in verse 10 and says, two men went up to the temple to pray. Now, If we're going to understand the parable, we have to understand temple architecture. Who could go into the temple? Jews or Gentiles? Wrong. Gentiles could go in too, but they had to stay in the Gentile court. Okay? Who could go further in? Gentiles or Jews? Jews. You're right. Good job. Who could go further in from there? A Jewish man or a Jewish woman? Jewish man. It's all right. These are no longer trick questions, I promise. Who could go further than the Jewish man? A Levite or a Jewish man? A Levite. Who could go further than the Levite? A priest. Who could go further than that priest? The high priest. Do you see what Jesus is doing is he's setting up a temple imagery for what he is articulating here. Now, we're not given info on whether the tax collector was Gentile or Jewish or those types of things. But what we have to remember is here is a man who has followed the law in the Pharisee, right? Here is a man who has followed the law, who has kept the law, who does more than the law, who fasts, who tithes, who gives his money away, and yet his heart is still not right. The outward things that would articulate to you and to I that he is righteous in the sight of God are true. Does the Pharisee lie at any point in what he says? Does he lie? No. He speaks truth about himself. He articulates the truth of who he is. Not just in what he says, but in the heart behind it as well. Now, you probably have never experienced this. It's probably just me. But have you ever been in a discussion with someone where you know you are right? I never have these discussions. You know you are right. And yet... To emphasize my rightness would be to do damage to the other. It would wound them. It would harm them. It wouldn't extend the mercy of God to them. You see, we can be right in what we say. We can be right in what we believe. We can be right as we check the list off. But Jesus wants more than just rightness. He wants you. He wants me. 
And so the Pharisee stands as a righteous man in the temple. And he begins to pray. Interesting way to start a prayer, isn't it? God, I thank you, so far so good, that I am not like other men. As I reflected on this passage this week, I was struck in my own heart. How many times do I begin my prayer to the Lord in that way? How many times do I orient myself in my prayer in a negative orientation? God, I thank you that I'm not like that. I thank you that I'm not like Shirley who does this. I thank you that I'm not like Jane or Joe or Mark. I thank you that you've blessed me so much, Lord. Now, right thanks and praise is necessary, absolutely. But the moment, the moment when we exude, assert, press our rightness to the detriment of others, we're in a quandary. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that man over there. Who is the tax collector? Who is the tax collector in my life? Because you see, I answer my own question, if you noticed. Who do I identify with? If I'm truly honest, I identify with the Pharisee. Because come on, look at the funny clothes. Right? No. I identify with him. Why? Because that is the habitation of my heart. I thank you, God, that I am not like the other. But this is where Jesus flips it on us. He pulls the rug out from underneath the hearer, the reader, and us today. And he says, then there was a tax collector. If you notice, verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself. The tax collector, verse 13, standing far off. Both standing before the Lord. Both in the presence of God. One pressing his agenda, the other truly recognizing the mercy of God. And the tax collector would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God Be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus has this throwaway line. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Can you imagine the shock? No, Jesus, maybe you need to retell it again. You got it wrong at the end because here is the righteous man. And you're telling me all the things that he does for the church, for his community, how he prays, how he fasts, how he gives, what he does in his job. He's not justified. 
Now, there's a loaded word, isn't it? Justification. To be justified in the eyes of God is to be in right relationship with him. And justification is something that happens outside of ourselves. It's not something that we can actually conjure up in ourselves. The mercy of God is what cultivates that in us. As I thought about this parable this week, I thought, what would have the parable looked like had the Pharisee not stood by himself, but having a heart transformed by the mercy of God, gone and stood with the tax collector and said, God, I thank you that I am like this man. That I am extortionate. I am adulterous. I am. Both would have gone down to their house justified. You see, the point of the parable is that in order for us to truly stand in the presence of God, we must be willing to receive his mercy. Not just be right. Not just be true. But the mission in the kingdom of God is salted and peppered with God's mercy. The challenge for us this morning, I think, is this. As I said already, number one, who do you identify with? And be honest about who you identify with. It's easy for us to come in here and be inoculated to the power of the scriptures and the movement and power of the sacrament and leave this place still a Pharisee. The desire of the heart of Jesus is that you would be transformed and justified by his mercy through the washing of water, through the proclamation of the word and the celebration and reception of his body and blood. In order that you might be his people in the world. That you, church, might be the sacrament of Christ in the world. We do this in our lives. When we see the tax collector right now. Who is your tax collector? Who is the one in your life who is your tax collector? We all have them. Maybe it is because of political affiliation. Maybe it's because of um, their life stage. Maybe it's because of lifestyle questions. Maybe it's because you just don't like them. Come on now. We all got them. Who is the tax collector to you? That when you stand before the Lord and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. When we first moved to Missoula, I had a chance to work with an organization called the Pavarello Center in Missoula, and they deal with homeless 
issues and homeless people. They're actually the only night shelter in all of Missoula. And I joined up as a volunteer with something called the Homeless Outreach Teams. And we got these great bright orange t-shirts and we'd walk around to meet with those who are chronically homeless. Chronic homelessness is anybody who's lived on the street for a year or more. And we went around and we take toiletries to them. We would take sack lunches to them. We'd talk with them. And I remember one time going and feeling the Lord say to me in my heart, Justin, you are the Pharisee. And they are the tax collector. Because I would pray and I would say, I thank you, God, after I come back with the team. I thank you, God, that I am not like them. But the mercy of God does not stop. It reaches out to them as well. And I remember having a conversation with one of the men that we were serving. We'll call him Bob. And he smelled, and he was unkempt, and it was uncomfortable for me. And we started talking, and he told me his story about his abuse, his brokenness, the things that had led him to that place. And again, the Lord said, Justin, you are the Pharisee. And in that encounter, I received the mercy of God afresh in my life. Through the tax collector, the one that I said, I'm glad I'm not like them. The second question for us this morning is, will you receive the breadth, the height, the distance of where the mercy of God will take you? Praise God for the blessings of our lives. But those blessings are not yours, they're his. And they are for you to take into the world. What does it look like for us to stand next to the tax collector in the temple? To say his mercy is for you as well. His mercy is for you to come. His mercy is for you to be a part of our community. His mercy is that you might encounter the living Jesus in order that you too might be transformed. By the loving kindness. By his grace that is everlasting. Unto ages of ages. What does it look like. To no longer be the Pharisee. In your life. Are we willing. To enter in as the tax collector did. And allow the mercy of God to justify us. Not our fasting, not our prayer, not our giving. But the mercy of God. For that is what we have received through Jesus. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we may be a people who exude the mercy of Jesus. In order that those that encounter us might get a glimpse, a hint, a taste of that mercy. And they too might be drawn into the mercy of God as we worship him together. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.